wanted Jermaine Barnes to come to Minnesota for a workout with me was I saw him play, uh, I saw the video of the game that he played, I think it was 2012 in the Williams Jones Cup and I saw a young man uh, with a lot of athleticism but other than athleticism, I saw a guy that has a basketball IQ. He can shoot the three, he can put the ball on the floor, he's very athletic and he understands how to play basketball. And, uh, and the NBA, we're always looking for talented players who understand how to play the games. You know, but, but when you get to a certain age, you gotta ask yourself, you know, to come back and try for an NBA team, you have no guaranteed contract. So you're leaving guaranteed money on the table in Europe for a drink. And a lot of times for the NBA, you may be good enough, you may be better than some of the other guys, but if they're a first round pick and they have a guaranteed contract, you're gonna get cut because of numbers, not because of skill. And that's something that European players have to always weigh. That if I give up this guaranteed money and I don't make it, what do I do? And so it's a tough choice for guys like Jermaine. Jermaine Barnes goes to the hole, taking it within his own hands. Sometimes he has to do what he has to do. Jermaine Barnes having a heck of a game. Oh, that was a nice set. Alley oop for JB. Jermaine Barnes in his triple threat. Step back, pull up, and he got the shooter's bounce. Got the shooter's bounce. An old school move again. That time he hit him with the step back. Jermaine from three. Woo! He kicks it to Barnes. To the hole. And, ooh, nice move. You see how he extends? Got his body in there. That was nice. Nice extension. That was a pro move. This is to Jermaine Barnes with the turnaround. Oh, Bottom of the net as he talks to the members of his team. He's feeling pretty good tonight. Jermaine Barnes with a strong rebound inside. Oh, look at him. He's fired up. Barnes, Barnes is feeling it today. What a layup. Barnes with a nice spin move for the easy layup. Barnes is having a heck of a game. Oh, oh, oh. Barnes with the move to the cup. What a move by Barnes. His fun, his fun. He has great fundamentals, doesn't he? Nice move by Barnes. Using his body underneath the hoop. What a shot by Jermaine Barnes. Oh my goodness. Here it is, 1.6 seconds to go. Inbound pass to Jermaine Barnes for the win. Oh! At the buzzer. Jermaine Barnes at the buzzer. What's up, everybody? Not my house is in the house. This is your host, Eric. And as always, right next to me is my co-host, Zach. Zach, what's going on this morning, my friend? Just excited. This guy's a walking bucket, and we've heard a lot about him. Over guest, boss, boss. This guy's got amazing footwork and fundamentals, and I just can't wait to learn more from him. He's got an incredible story from what I hear. Absolutely. He's a professional basketball player who's played all over the world. He has proven to be one of the smoothest scorers in every country and league he's played in. He's a silver medal winner, and we're honored to have him, Mr. Jermaine Barnes. How are you doing today, sir? Oh, it's excellent to be here. I appreciate you guys bringing me on. Absolutely. We feel it's important for our guests, you know, to get to get to know them for our listeners. So before we start talking about hoops, where did you grow up and what was your childhood like growing up there? I'm from actually I'm from Atlanta, Georgia. Um, anybody that's from, you know, Atlanta, Georgia, born in the 80s like we were, it wasn't the, the best situation to grow up in. But um, I had two providing parents that worked their tails off. Uh, they moved us out of the uh, suburb, suburbs of Atlanta, and we moved to Morrow, Georgia, when I got into middle school. So it kind of gave us new opportunities, so to speak. Um, I'm not ashamed of where we come from, but poverty areas are, you know, rich in a Black community. And um, I'm just really thankful that I had a good father that worked hard to put us in better situations so we could have a better future. Yeah, absolutely. Super important. What was the what was your introduction to sports? Was it like Little League Baseball or, or was it basketball, your first sport? 
I was a football player, actually. I'm a big NFL fan. Nice. Um, I, I love football, but the positions that I was playing when I hit my growth spurt, it didn't benefit at the time. And <laughs> I had a greater passion for basketball. I was just a lot better at football. But it helped the transition because I was over-aggressive. So when you come to basketball, usually the more more aggressive players, the more superior player. So, yeah, my, my early days were football. I mean, I was offered by all the major Division I schools. Uh, I was one of the few players at our high school to start varsity as a freshman in both sports. So, yeah, like uh, I'm a big I'm a big football guy. That's a, that's pretty unheard of. I know at my school, you know, you pretty much couldn't start varsity as a freshman. It was almost like a rule you couldn't do it. Um, I'm just curious. I'm a huge football fan too. What uh, what positions were you playing in football in high school? In the early days, I was a running back, okay. but as I grew, they moved me to receiver. But my primary position was middle linebacker, okay. and I was a big Ray Lewis guy. Okay. So everything was about reading, aggression, and and blowing everything up. Okay. So yeah, um, I was a middle linebacker. So you were a handle in high school then, man, because a lot of those high school players don't don't <laughs> like to mix it up. <laughs> so. Yeah, and, and you're talking about Georgia. You know, Georgia, we're, we're football country. Right. So like, yeah, if you don't love football, you're in the wrong state. <laughs> well, and you and you took it to Clemson. What two weeks ago? <laughs> so uh, that was that was pretty that was pretty awesome. Um, so when did you fall in love with basketball? Like, when did you start like realizing, I mean, you said you realized that, you know, basketball was, was the sport that was going to take you somewhere. When did you start falling in love with that sport? Well, for me, I'm a realist. So I looked at the future of careers. There's not much of a career in football if you don't make it to the NFL, but there were so many different things you can do in basketball, whether it was playing or going around the world what was after basketball, business aspects of it. So um, that that helped in my decision-making process. But I would say I fell in love with basketball in eighth grade. Like I fell in love with it. I was very big on, you know, athleticism, dunking. You know, um, I was a big Dennis Rodman guy, so I wanted to rebound at a high level. Then I loved, you know, Jordan, Kobe, Shaq, you know, Larry Johnson, anybody that was just super aggressive going to the rim. That was our culture. So there was no room for soft was nothing like today's generation. Like this new, this is not even basketball anymore. But in our time, being masculine, you know, dominant, that was the culture. So, you know, when I saw those people play and I seen them play at a high level, I knew that's what I wanted to do with my life, you know. So um, I put all my eggs into that basket, so to speak. You uh, were you playing the blacktop game at that that early on? Also, it was super popular to play street ball when we were growing up. Like yeah. it's not like it is now. And Eric, you would understand this, but in in our generation, the generation before us, it was all about anywhere you could play. So you might have practice at the gym, and then when you get home, you and your friends go outside to the street ball court. And you compete. That's where you got better because sports are all about competition because iron sharpens iron. These kids don't get to compete anymore. They're like cone babies. They're just doing drills. But we had to adjust on the fly. You played against grown men. You played against peers. You played against different races, cultures, backgrounds. It made you better. Like sports is like the best teacher of culture and how to grow up and be a young man because Everywhere you go, it was something different. Now, Lord, everything's so sheltered and sensitive. 
You know, I agree with you on the blacktop thing, especially because, like you said, you're playing against grown men, all different kind of players. You don't get that playing, like if you're playing in eighth grade, you're only playing against other eighth graders, right? And when you're playing in high school, you're playing, you know, freshmen, sophomores, juniors, and seniors. But on, on the blacktop, you could be playing against 20, 25-year-old guys when you're 13 years old. You know what I mean? Like, and, and if that's not uh, great lessons on how to what you know where to pick your spots, you know. And another thing I liked about the blacktop game is you could practice things on the blacktop and see what worked and what didn't work, and then you could use that actually in game situations. Where I don't think you really could do that in high school if you didn't have that opportunity. I totally agree. I totally agree, and I agree with the aspect of what you were saying about learning different things on the fly. And the biggest thing I would say you learn was how to be a man. Because if you were super talented, they can't guard you. Now they're going to press the tough guy game. Okay, we can't guard him. He's good. Let's see if he's tough. We yeah. knock him down, he'll quit. So many different players are just like, um, I don't like it that much, or that was too rough, or I'm not going <laughs> in there anymore. You, you got to measure where your heart and your passion was for the sport. If you really love it, you stepped up. And what happens is you earn the respect of your peers and those before you. And that's how you propelled and became a better player. You proved it to yourself, you know, yeah. as opposed to everything being given to you. Yeah. And it teaches you to be a winner too, because nobody wants to sit out another three, four games waiting for the next game to get on. That's so so it definitely teaches you how to win. And, uh, you know, one, one thing I wanted to ask you is I watched quite a few of your highlights for, to prepare for this conversation. And what I immediately noticed about you was your footwork. I mean, your reverse pivot, the jab and the drive is one thing that really stood out to me. And I'm just curious who some of your idols were growing up, but also like how important was working on your footwork, just like the minor footwork in your game to be such a great scorer. Yeah. I mean, anybody that's a, a lover of the game or really a, a studier of the real game, understands that footwork is everything. Everybody can jump, everybody can run. That stuff's going to fade. So I used to tell myself in college, like, okay, I'm superior when it comes to athleticism, but everybody else on the next level is going to have that same stuff. So I took it upon myself my senior year in college. I'll never forget where I just spent the whole summer studying. So I watched Kobe, Reggie Miller, Michael Jordan, Kobe, Reggie Miller, Michael Jordan, 24 hours a day. And I'm like, how is Kobe getting open? How is Mike getting this fadeaway off? Like, how is he getting separation? Why can't they block it? Is he doing something, you know, to bump them or get them off balance? So the more and more I studied, the more I learned. And then I will go to the court and I would try it. I didn't care how I looked. I didn't care how I played. I wanted to learn what they knew. And then outside of just watching them do it, I used to listen to them speak about it. You know, and it, it became more of a relationship with the game. I try to tell people, like, they used to always make fun of me, like, when I follow through. It's like, oh, you follow through so hard. I'm like, you don't understand the relationship between the ball. When it leaves your hand, you and the ball have a relationship. If you break it, trying to be cute and put your hands down and do all you're going to break the relationship. You're going you're gonna to break the spin. So I had to learn about these things. When I watched Larry Bird, he said, learn the whole court. So when he spins and shoots, it's 90 degrees because if he gets in trouble, he can go off the glass. I'm like, okay, I see why Larry used to do that. I see why these guys did that, which is why now when I watch these new guys play, I'm like, you would have never made it back then because you guys don't care about the game. 
You care about the highlight. You don't understand why you're doing something. You're just doing it. You see these kids doing these Euro steps? It's like, why did you do a Euro step just then for no reason? There's (laughs) nobody to Euro. And you've never been to Europe. It's just a lot of different things that are just completely (laughs) ridiculous. You know what I'm saying? Like, what are you doing? Ginobili isn't even from Europe. Like, you don't even know where these things are coming from. So when we were growing up, you went into the body, got the and one, and finished the layup. Now, they don't go into the body. They do the Euro step. So they wonder why all the older guys still dominate the game. It's because of the skill set and footwork. Yeah. I mean, it's true. You see a guy like Vince Carter who can still play until he's 43. You know, the guys that still play till they're 40. But then you have a lot of critics saying those guys can never play in the new era. And it just makes no sense to me because it's like they are playing in this era just at age 43. (laughs) But, um, you know, you had a great high school career at Morrow. And what was the high school hoop scene like for you in Georgia? I mean, did you go up against any familiar names or who would you say was the top dog during your era? Listen, listen, there was no time from when I was coming up all the way up until where we are right now that was more competitive than my generation, except for the generation before us, because I think they were better than us. But when I came out, our class was ridiculous. Everybody in our region and state all went to the NBA, all of them. So it's like we're talking about Josh Powell won two championships with Kobe Bryant. He was literally five minutes away from me at Riverdale. Kwame Brown came out. He was the number one pick. These are all the people that were in our class. Tony Douglas played for the Knicks. He was a lottery pick. Like we had all of these guys. And then, you know, Josh Pace, who played with Camelo on the national championship team. He was the starting point guard. Like we had to deal with all of these people in the same borough. So imagine like it was just super tough to be a basketball player in that time. So it's like, how do you separate yourself? How do you get seen? How do you get noticed? And like my story is a story that I think every young person should hear about what happens off the court. It's just as important what happens on the court because I started varsity freshman and sophomore. I was breaking records my first two years. And then I didn't play my whole junior season because of grades. So I set out my whole junior year. So every NCAA Division I school backed off me. Like nobody worked with me anymore. We're talking about when I was at my high school, my teachers would tell me I'm a loser and they thought I was going to be somebody. This is a true story. So like after my junior year, I decided that the only person that can make Jermaine Barnes a success in this life is Jermaine Barnes. So like I had one really close friend to me, Sherman Douglas, and he told me, he was like, look, I'll be here with you if you really want this. And every day we worked. We were kids. We didn't know what the hell we was working on, but we worked. We watched Deion Sanders running a weight vest. We ran in a weight vest. We saw people running the pool. We ran in the pool. We saw air alert. So we was outside in the yard jumping with them stupid shoes. Like we were doing everything we could. So I went from a 6'2", 180-pound sophomore to nobody seeing me my entire junior year to coming back my senior year 6'4", 195. It was like what is that? Like, I was a man then, like I was ready and I was bitter and I was angry and everybody needed to know about it when I played. And I took that to the court and that's, that's kind of how I had that big senior season. Yeah. And I did air alert. That shit used to kill my legs, but I mean, it did help. (laughs) I mean, that, I mean, (laughs) it was old school. I got the Baron Davis autograph picture in there and everything, but I mean, that air alert stuff worked. And, um, 
You know, you mentioned you played against Kwame, and this is Kwame Brown, somebody that I feel gets a really tough rap, especially from the media and everything that he's been saying, you know, lately is just so true with what's going on. And I'm just curious how good he was in high school. Like, what can you tell our listeners about playing against a guy like Kwame in high school? Kwame Brown was a man child. He dominated everybody. People don't understand that just because you're sitting at home and you get to watch people on TV and you get to say they suck, you can never compete against them. You can never play at their level. You don't understand the level. You're a TV watcher. You know, Kwame, Kwame dominated and he was effortless. People don't realize the load he had to carry from his family to his upbringing, to him losing his father. Like Kwame had a lot of things on his shoulder that a teenager shouldn't have had. So when he made it, he walked into the NBA as everybody's idol. Michael Jordan drafted me. I'm special. And Michael Jordan is a peer guy. Like he's old school, alpha dog. Mike, you know, he don't want no teenager. But the draft class was so bad. People don't realize this. That was the worst NBA draft class ever. The first three picks were children. So Mike just picked the, the best of the children. Tyson Chandler wasn't that good. He couldn't score. He's a rebounder, put back defender kind of guy. And the only reason he had a good career is because the CP3 saved him. Now, Eddie Curry, you see how that turned out. He was lazy. He was fat. He didn't, you know, I think he was super talented, but none of that worked. None of those guys would have worked with Mike. And once you get out of the top three, everybody else, it was a bad draft class. So I thought Kwame had a lot of talent. He showed promise. He had the 30-point game against KG. He had the 35-point game against Chris Webber. But then Kwame couldn't stay healthy. You know what I'm saying? So it's like, it's a lot of things that go into it. The NBA is going to make good who they want good. They create legends. It's just like WWE wrestling. It's not like it was in the 80s and 70s where your game did the talking. That's why they used to draft people out of NEIA or black colleges or D2s. They just took the talent. Now, oh, who has the most YouTube subscribers and who has the most Instagram followers? And it's not about who's the best. It's about creating superstars. And I call it the LeBron James effect. You're you're just creating you're creating stars. It's the WWE. You know we got Hulkamania going on right now. You know. Yeah. You know I I must say I know you're a student of the game because I think it's amazing that you just listed off two key stats from Kwame playing against you know KG and some of the other games. I mean the, the fact that that just popped immediately into your into your head that shows that you really are truly a student of the game. I study. You know, when me and you were growing up, we didn't have internet. We had Street and Smith. So you had to get the magazines and read about people. I knew about people in Europe. I knew about Dirk before anybody knew Dirk. And I'm like, how do you know all these people? I was obsessed. (laughs) I was obsessed with the game and knowing who everybody was and what they did well. And when NBA Live came out, I would create them and I would have all their likeness. And they'd be like, man, can we just play? No, no, no. I have to make it right. (laughs) I was that kind of kid. That's awesome. Hey, Jermaine, I want to ask you one more question about Kwame, if you don't mind. Um, Do you think if Kwame didn't get drafted by Jordan and Jordan, how how you hear in in the news how Jordan just really not destroyed him, but really rode him really, really hard, you know, especially at the age of 18. Do you think if he goes to a different team, we're talking about Kwame differently in the press and the media? Kwame Brown went from Michael Jordan, who's the toughest critic in NBA history, to the second toughest critic in history, Kobe Bryant. 
if your personalities don't match their personalities, and I can speak for this because I coached in Europe the last four years, I have a very alpha dog, old school, tough personality, but I had to take a step back and say, JB, the leaders learn how to lead in different ways. Michael Jordan is, this is the way it is. And if you ain't like me, I don't like you. Kobe, this is the way it is. If you're not like me, I don't understand you and you're a loser. And that's how we were raised. But everybody don't respond that way. And I had to learn that, you know, so uh, I think if he would have, I personally think two years of college would have did him well. Not that he wasn't ready for the NBA. He had the talent. But if he did two years of college and and did like kind of like what Tim Duncan did, got more polished, you know, and got away from home and, you know, got to experience some things. You 18 years old after a tough childhood and then you get through into a man's world with the most alpha dogs you're ever going to meet in your life with Mike and Kobe. Nobody would have succeeded. Nobody. No high school player in the history of basketball would have succeeded. Nobody. You know, I'm glad everybody would have failed under them, too. I'm glad you said that, because I think the other thing that people forget, especially people on the couch watching the games, is think back when you're 18 and really, I mean, how immature you are at 18 for the most part. And then you're going into a professional business, you know, a business that can be very ruthless from what we hear from a lot of former players in terms of, you know, how people are getting traded, how people are getting released, all those things. And you know, it's it, it could definitely be a recipe for disaster. Um, speaking of that, I want to talk about AU real quick. AU has changed over the years for sure. We definitely get some mixed feelings on our show from guests about it. But what was your overall experience with AU? I hate AU. I don't like it. I think it destroyed basketball. That's just my personal opinion. That doesn't make it a fact. I didn't believe in AU. I thought old school. I'll kill at my high school. Scouts will come see me and I'll sign. But I was in the generation where the cultures were changing, where AAU mattered and Nike and them were taking over Adidas, all of that stuff. I never wanted to be a part of it, like, because it was all political and all hype. And it's like, this dude's not that good, but you got all this stuff behind you. And that's the way it was. I hate to say this. I really hate to say this. We had a kid in our class when I was coming out, because me, Kwame, Joshua, we all came out in 2001. We had this kid in our class named Carl Hollinsworth. I hate to call names. Forgive me, brother, but I'm going to say it. He dominated everybody. He was a man child in high school, 6'4", like 240 pounds in eighth grade all the way up, right? And it's a product of that whole AAU and hype and all that stuff. And I used to tell him when he used to run his mouth to us because he was scoring 50 and all this stuff. I said, you're not going to transition well into college because everybody else is your size. We're kids. We 180 pounds and stuff. Of course, you're going to push us out of the way and lay it up. But what's going to happen when we become 200 pounds and we hit growth spurts? You're just an early bloomer. Like, yeah. now what? And that's what happened. He went to Tulane. He didn't cut it. He went to Stetson, didn't cut it. And then when it was time to go to Europe or whatever, mentally, he wasn't used to having to fight and work because it was all given to him. That's all this AAU culture is. That's all it is. So that's why you see these kids, like like you just said, Zach, like we talk about this new generation and this guy couldn't play here and this guy couldn't do that. But we wonder why all these young kids can't stay healthy. Right. But Michael Jordan played nine 82-game seasons. Kobe yeah. Bryant, like these dudes were Ironmen. They played all the time. They were tough. They were strong. Now these kids can't even fit their jersey. 
they jersey <laughs> hanging off their sleeves and man everybody friends everybody hugging and kissing you let me score i'll let you score let's dance together it's like what is what is this <laughs> yeah. i call I, I call it the brian effect yeah, and, you know, I see all this, too, because I coach high school sports now, and the, some of the kids I coach, I mean, they try to go to the other locker rooms and see their friends on the opposing teams, and I just do not relate to that because in my era, I wasn't talking to you before the game. I wasn't texting you. I didn't want to see you. I, I wanted to kill you on the court, you know? Amen. It's just a different era for sure. And, uh, you know, you talked about AU in high school, and, you know, you mentioned how you didn't, you weren't able to go division one because of your junior season, but did you have any division one schools looking at you or really? what was the reason for junior college? Uh, I mean, talk to us about that route to junior college. University of Tennessee offered me as a sophomore. I went to the university of Tennessee as a sophomore on a visit. Vincent Yarbrough, who was an all American, the guy that Kobe dunked on when he went behind the back around 360 from the Robert Ory baseline, like full court pass. That was Vincent Yarbrough. He was there. He was the man. He was the All-American. He was Mr. SEC. I knew all about him. He's the one that told, you know, them to sign me. I, I got to see Peyton Manning. I got to see Jamal Lewis. All I got to go to the University of Tennessee and really be a part. I wanted that. And yeah. I, I blew it. I, like you said, I was a kid. You know, and, and in the Black community, we don't push academics. A lot of guys got their grades handed to them. My school wasn't like that. They didn't care. You know, and we were a football school. Mar High School is a power football school. You know, so it was like you just kind of got brushed to the side. So, like, when I didn't qualify, I didn't make the SAT score, I didn't make the GPA, it's like, now what? Like, what's going to happen now? And most of the kids in our community just quit, sold drugs or whatever, or, you know, just got a job. But I didn't care what school I went to. I just knew, you know, I had what it take to make it. Like I'm, I'm persistent. You can't tell me no. You're not going to tell me no. I'm going to make a way. If I'm at the worst school in America, I'm going to make everybody come watch one person. You know, so somehow, some way it's going to happen. So yeah, I did go junior college. Uh, what happened was Robert Moore, who's currently coaching at Columbus State University right now. They heard about me, and they say he didn't qualify Division One. So all the JUCOs was, like, trying to go after me. So I played in the North versus South All-Star game down in the, the – I forgot what arena we played in in Atlanta. So all the Division One coaches are lined up. I got 25 offers in the layup line. Wow. You know, just from dunking. You know, they were like – you know, they, my coach was like, watch them play. And, like – you know, I won MVP of the game. I dominated the game. And everybody was like, we're signing them. And then they got the paperwork and they were looking at the grades. Oh, 2.2 GPA. Nope. Uh, 890 on his SAT. Nope. <laughs> you know, so it wasn't a matter of if the kid's intelligent or not. We hated school. Like, yeah. <laughs> we just, I went to school every day. It was just like, why am I learning this? And the evolution <laughs> of man is not a monkey. Like, I don't want to, I don't want to be here. Like, what are we doing? This isn't, this isn't for me. College was more my speed because it's more free thinking. But in high school, you're, you're telling me this recited information. When I came from my household, my father taught me how to be a free thinker. You're not going to tell me about Columbus when we know he stole. Like, I don't want to read about these people. This is BS, you yeah. know? <laughs> so I was a big, I was a big fan of the Messiah. So I used to read 
about Christ and how he really was. And this, you know, soft, humble, everybody forgive everybody. That wasn't the person I was reading about. I was reading about a person turning over tables in the church because they pimping God or him telling the Pharisees that they were the sons of Satan. I said, I like this guy. <laughs> He'll say he don't care. Like yeah. it's all about the most high God. And I fell in love with that concept. So like that carried me. So no matter how hard things were, or I didn't get into proper school, I always had something to tap into because ever since I was two years old, I read about this guy that just didn't care, you know? Yeah. So. Yeah. And I'm, I'm with you on school. I didn't like school either. I didn't like all the big math equations and then, they were like, well, you got to know how to write a check. I'm like, I'm not, I don't need to know this equation to write a damn check. But, sure. um, I know personally how competitive junior college can be because everyone is talented. They all want to move on to the next level as quickly as they can. And I'd love to hear about what your mindset was in JUCO and just the everyday grind of making it to Atlanta Christian and then to point. Because I think it's amazing what you're doing in college because you did it for three different schools, three different coaches in three years, essentially. And I guess my question is, do you think moving around so much prepared you for the next level? Or do you think a four-year school with a set system would have been a much better situation for you as far as being noticed? Well, I'll say this, you know, wide open, and I hope every young person hears me. I cost myself a lot of money bouncing around all those schools. If I don't win the University of Tennessee, I would be well off as an athlete. I probably would have got drafted, but my bad decisions cost me a lot of money. And I'm okay with that because I think it built a lot of character, but we could have skipped a lot of those steps. It's like what you teach your kids. Okay, you made a mistake, you can recover from it, but you still got to deal with the consequences of the mistake. You know what I'm saying? So when I went to JUCO, it was a doggy dog world. Everybody wants to make it. And we had nine division one players on one team. They were just all stupid. Now when I say some people don't make it because they're lazy or what, no, these guys were stupid. Like they couldn't write, read, you know, so they were just six, nine, 40 inch vertical, you know, whatever. So everything was so competitive. We had like, man, Coach Moore had like 22 division one scouts every practice, Wow, every practice. Now talking about competitive and fighting and being mad at the cafeteria, like it was crazy, you know? So, and I came through an air where Juco guys started getting drafted. So when I was in high school, it was high school guys getting drafted. And then when I went to JUCO, all the JUCO guys started getting drafted. So I had eight NBA guys in our conference. So it's just like I always had to play against these ridiculously good guys. I'm like, why can't I go to Montana or something and average 50? You know, I'm down here in the South with all these freak athletes, man. It's like it was rough. But um, it was my fault because I didn't qualify for division one out of juco see in juco what they don't understand is i had the gpa but you have to graduate from the juco and it's like 120 hours and i'm like i'm not doing all of that like i'll just go to the next school so i'm not gonna say the school i'll let people google i won't say the school because they're they're you know whatever so there's a particular school that i went to right after juco we had two mcdonald all-americans on that roster that transferred from big schools because they got in trouble for like robbery, robbery, crazy things. So this particular school gave me money. So I'm like, I'm a kid. Like, wow. I'm rich. Give me some money. You know, I'm going to come play. So I get there, you know, and I'm excited. And, you know, the coach is rich. And, you know, the assistant coach 
hated my guts. The head coach loved me, but the assistant coach hated my guts. And I'm going to explain why. And this is the transition of life that we all have to learn. I'm a city kid. So if I score, I'm going to talk to you. If I dunk on you, I'm going to talk to you. And I'm going to let you know you're not going to score. And this is what's going to – he hated that. Just shut up and play. But the head coach was like, leave him alone. He's producing. So they're going back and forth. The head coach resigns. He had a, a you know a situation with him and his wife, and he was trying to save his family, and he left because he was a well-off guy. So, and I'm in the country now, so he got you know oil type money. So he leaves the team. I'm left with the guy that hates me. <laughs> so he he's like really flexing his muscles of yeah, I'm gonna ruin you. You know, yeah. so, I mean, he went out of his way to do that. And then I broke my foot. And then once I broke my foot, it was it. You know, and he just every day mentally decapitated me. Like, you're not that good. I don't know why everybody liked you. You know, you're not going to amount to anything. You left high school all state. Now you're, look at you. And he was right. Because I took a step back and I said, regardless of how his message de- is delivered, Look at what I'm doing. It's been it's been three years and I've accomplished nothing out of everything I've accomplished in high school. I was supposed to be a lot further than where I am. What am I doing? So I took a step back and I left school. Like I left school and I just really did a lot of soul searching. And I'm not ashamed to say, like, I pray, I prayed and I told God, excuse my language on your podcast. I said, God, I'm a fuck up. Like I, I, I forgot the way. I'm arrogant. Like I, I'm in love with the fact that all these little cheerleaders and dance team girls like me. I got my little muscles out. You know, I got a little money. You know, you can't. I got my car. You can't tell me nothing. And just that fast, everything was stripped from me, and I had to recognize that I was nothing. Nobody's gonna want you. You didn't even like really play. And who cares that you went to a JUCO? Now in the university system, you're not doing anything. And this is three years wasted. And I was just like. If you just give me an opportunity, just one opportunity to prove to the world that I can actually play my way, my style, not being put in the box, send me somewhere where they're going to allow me to be free. And I promise, like, I'm a professional athlete. And this is a lot of things that people don't realize when they talk about a relationship from God. God is not a rabbit's foot. He's going to hold you accountable. You know, so I work my tail off. That goes back to the conversation we had before about studying footwork. He made me study. Don't just say what you want. Go out and study. So I studied these players. I hit the weights. I ran the miles every day. I wrote my goals down. And I was like, okay, I'm going to this super small school. You know, black people, you went to a white boy school. That's what they call it. You know what I'm saying? It's like I went to this school that was out of my element. I'm a city kid. All I know is my culture. Now I'm around practically Amish people, you know, when you see on TV, Little House on the Prairie, and, you know, it's, it's a, it was completely weird. And it was just like, what, where am I? You know, but the coach said something to me that stood out. He said, Jermaine, here's our schedule. And it was like seven Division One schools on the schedule and powerhouse D2s and schools that beat the school I was just at in the national tournament and everything like that. And I'm like, wow, man, we're going to get killed. He said, not if you're as good as I think you are. And he challenged me, you know, so I took that personal, you know, and I wanted that on my back. So, you know, um, when I wrote all my goals down, I never forget the first goal. 
it was I want to be the national player of the year because I have to be the best at this level to even make it professional. So opening night, we have to play <laughs> the national player of the year. And I was like, whoa, God, you're not going to warm me up? Like, let me get a couple bumps. He's like, oh, no, no, no. You said, you told me you were the best player in the country. So I figured I would give you the best player in the country in reality. He actually is the best. So um, if you can't beat him, you don't need to talk to me. Otherwise, you're calling me a liar because you told me that this is what you want. And I'm supposed to, quote, unquote, be your God. So I want to see what you're going to do now. Faith Without Works is dead. I'm just standing there like, wow. <laughs> like, you know, that's the type of real relationship I have with God where it's just direct. And it's like, you're not going to fake it. It's either you're about this or you're not. And I yeah. was like, I'm totally about it. So. You know, I went out there and I performed. And, and once I performed that night, nobody could tell me that I wasn't a professional athlete. Nobody could tell me. I proved it to myself. My work came to, you know, it came to reality right before my face. That's a great story. And, you know, the things things that I practice daily nowadays is gratitude, you know. And practicing gratitude, being humbled, things like that make a difference because I think it does recenter you and gets your focus where it needs to be. You know, there's a, a lot of great stuff you've been telling us so far in this pod, and it, it, it makes sense. Now, did you go through the NBA draft process at all? No, did I did have, not. You did not have that opportunity. This is what happened. When I left college, um, I didn't know what I was going to do. All the European coaches said, this guy can absolutely flat out play, but we're scared to take him. Somebody else take him, and we'll see what he does, and then we'll take him. So that, that's what was happening, and time kept going. And I'm playing in like these pro-ams and stuff and I'm killing everybody. And I'm like, yo, I'm ready. I'm ready. Then you get pumped, fake. Oh, this team's interested in you. This team's interested in you. But nothing happens because they're scared. Why are they scared? You went to an AI school. You went to a small school. Why didn't you go to Duke? Why didn't you go to College or Charleston? Why don't you go to UGA? You know, I got offers for players that have been there. So if they average 10 and you average 29, that kind of balances out. That's how they think, you know? So I didn't get any offers. So I'll never forget one day I was working at LA fitness. <laughs> I was working at LA fitness and I was, I got a call and this, this Japanese guy, he was like, Oh, uh, you know, I'm looking for uh Jermaine. I was like, yeah. Oh, we don't have no money. <laughs> I was like, what? He's like, we don't have no money, but we like you. Uh, Basically, he didn't want to disrespect me. Like, we only have $500. But if you don't have any offers, like, you can come to us and we can introduce you to everybody if you play a season with us. I told him, you're talking too much. Where's the flight? <laughs> that's, that's, I mean, that's old school. What are we talking about? I don't even care about money. I just want to prove to everybody that you're wrong. You know, so... I went, I went to Tokyo, Japan. Well, actually, Nagoya, where Ichi, Ichiro is from. They played professional baseball, Ichiro. So that was his home city. So I get there, and I have the biggest chip on my shoulder. So, you know, at the time, my agent, like, he wasn't my agent. It was more like a mentor. His name is Derek Stroud. He played, like, 14 years. He said, whatever you do in your first game, you're going to have to do. I wasn't hearing anything. I don't care about that. I'm out here to prove a point, whatever. So my first game, I had seven dunks. And I scored 40 points, seven dunks. I called him excited, man, I'm killing everything. I'm going to do it. He was like, what happened? I dunked seven times. I have 40 points. He was like, oh, my God. 
<laughs> no. I was like, what? He said, you're going to have to do that every night. I'm like, I don't care. I can. He was like, you just don't get it, son. And sure enough, man, them hard games come and you have 29 or 18 and you only dunk once. It's just like, is everything okay? Because <laughs> overseas is a cutthroat business. If you have one yeah. bad game, I don't care what your contract says, they're sending you home. Like, yeah. it's, it's doggy dog overseas. So, anyways, I um, I was uh played the whole season there, and it was such a great learning experience. Like, I had to learn to wash my own clothes. And this is not the 21st century. Oh, just throw it in the washing machine and press some buttons and Syria do it for you. No, I had to wash my own clothes, literally hang your own clothes, cook your own food, walk to the store, do all these different things that you don't do in the city. You know, so I was I had to grow up, you know what I'm saying? So I didn't really have much. So I would read all the time. So, OK, you know, I would read, I would study, I would watch film, I would wake up and I would train. And, you know, it just it taught me to I hate to say it like this, but taught me how to get in tune with me, like like myself. Like you really get to understand if you really like you, you know, when you over there and you're in them bad situations. So. When we was wrapping up that season, they weren't going to uh, bring me back for sure because we were losing and stuff. I was the only one there. And the last game is kind of what started like this myth, legend stuff about me, you know, for the next six years. So we were playing the championship team. We were down by 25 at halftime. And it was the last game of the year. So I was just like, it's over. So I went to the coach and I was like, look, we're going to lose. Clearly, this is over. Lose with me. And he was like, well, I said, you have nothing to lose. Just lose with me. And it was basically like Tracy McGrady versus the Spurs. Like, I scored 50 points in the second half. Like, I scored 63 that game, and, like, everybody was there. And they were just like, who the hell is that? You know? <laughs> and um, when I went home, they called me back and was like, yo, like, you know, where are you going to go next year? And I was like, man, nobody's really talking to me. And he was like, well, we'll like to have you back. So – I had to change my approach. Like when I went back, like we have to win this league and things were just like happening in my favor. Allen Houston came over, he caught a game on accident, you know what I'm saying? And I killed and then he brought me to like one of his shows, like they were doing like this big NBA show. So like things were just like, I call it like the Forrest Gump. You know how like Forrest Gump wiped his face and then it was in Walmart, you know, he get a shrimp boat and then got thunderstorm and now all the shrimp come to his boat. Yeah. In the army, he get a purple heart. Like, yeah, like things were happening for me, like weird, weirdly like that. So we got invited to the All Japan tournament where you have to play all the best teams. And we were like the lower seed team. Like our team wasn't even supposed to be there. And I literally averaged 48 points for the whole tournament. And they had like a good 29 scouts lined up watching every game of me just going hysterical. And I trained so much in Japan. I was making like a thousand shots a day, hitting the weights, running, and then I would go to practice. I didn't miss like when I played. So like David Benoit, Kobe's dad, Jelly Bean, all these dudes are there. I got offered by everybody my second year in Japan. So, I mean, when you asked me the question earlier, did this prepare you? Having to play on small teams, playing against Division One schools and stuff in college prepared me because I was used to carrying a load. Yeah, You know, it, it really prepared me for professional basketball overseas. 
Yeah. And I'm really glad that you brought up that 60 piece that you dropped because that was going to be my next question for you, because like you said, it was pretty, pretty historic night for you. Is that still the all time, uh, the, the most points in a game in Japan? Is that, is that still the record? That's still a record. Like you can Google it. 63 points. John Humphreys is the only guy that has more records in uh, Japan then my 63 still stood in the uh, Aichi League tournament, you know, and it was unheard of because my team wasn't in the JBL or the BJ League, which is the top two teams, two two leagues. So yeah. I wasn't supposed to be there. <laughs> you, know yeah. like, you know, but it started the myth like that carried on. Even when we were doing minor leagues, I scored 60 and a guy from Slam Magazine was there to visit his family. And he said, who is the dude scoring 60? You know what I'm saying? And then Slam Magazine featured me in their their, their issue, like the first minor league player ever. It was just yeah. like, I call it the Forrest Gump, man. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, I think I saw that you led the league in scoring seven times in your first eight seasons in eight different countries, which is really crazy to me because <laughs> there's so many different styles of play in different countries. and. I mean, I guess my question really is, what was your overall experience like playing overseas and what adjustments or little things did you specifically want to add to your repertoire or training throughout your career uh, as you moved from league to league and country to country? Well, I, I think one of the reasons why I was so successful as a scorer everywhere I went is because I perfected the mid-range. That's something nobody does. Either they're shooting a three-ball or they're dunking. But that middle piece is something that Kobe and Michael Jordan had. And nobody understood that they shot mid-range shots 80% of the game. So when I perfected that, there's really nothing anybody could do with me. They called my game boring unless I was dunking. But at the end of the night, they're like, yeah, it's 40. And he only shot five free throws. <laughs> it's, it's like, how was he scoring? Everybody in the world knew what I was going to do. They just couldn't do anything with it because I worked so hard on it. Um, as far as cultures and adjusting to being, man, I think I lived in 19 countries. So yeah. adjusting the culture, to be honest with you, I've always been a loner, you know, so I was, I was so okay with just being to myself. I stayed in the house all the time. I'm not a partier. I don't club. I don't do drugs. I don't even know what it tastes like to do alcohol or smoke, or I've never tried it before. I would say the biggest vice I had in my childhood well, not my childhood, my 20s and 30s was women. <laughs> That's a drug, you know what I'm saying? But I didn't do all of the things everybody else did. So when it was time to practice, the respect was gained on how hard I worked or how I elevated my teammates. That's why I say I, I can understand Kobe and Jordan for being so hard because that's how I was raised. As yeah. far as the success piece you were talking about, I learned this from Muhammad Ali. Like, I learned to be scared all the time. When I played, I played with a chip and I talked and I was arrogant, quote unquote, but they didn't know the true me. The true me, I understood that I wasn't good. And I used to tell myself, you're not good. You're not good, you're not good. So you gotta work, you gotta work, you gotta study, you gotta be more prepared. You're not long, you're not six eight, you're not like these freaky people. Like you have to be over prepared mentally to be successful. So when I used to walk into the game, I was already prepared for the test. But yeah. it was just based off the fear of being a failure. I didn't want to go back. You know, I didn't want to be the common guy in my city. I didn't want to work a nine to five. I, this is what I wanted to do in my life. And if I felt like I was always desperate and in fear of going back, 
then I would always be overprepared. So, I mean, I, I, I would put that a lot to the success I had was the fear of failure. I didn't want to be a failure. I was never afraid of the moment of taking the last shot or defending the best guy because I always just threw myself out there. You ever like, if you can't swim and the idiot just jumps in the middle of the pool and says, I got to figure it out. It's like, it's not a good idea, but it's like you're out there. Like, it's either you're going to die or you're going to learn how to swim. That was me all the time. I think like, we had very different pool days because I never experienced anything like that. <laughs> <laughs> um, I got to ask, though, because, I mean, it's amazing that you mastered the mid-range game at six foot four, and also your post-up game. I think is something that a lot of people don't talk about your ability to post up bigger and smaller guards. But um, I mean, you talked about living in nineteen different countries. This is my probably my favorite question to ask to anybody. But what was the craziest experience that you've had playing overseas, whether it's in the game with the fans or just living in another country? What's that one story that comes to mind? I have two. I have two. My best friend loves these stories that you know I ignore them. I act like they never happened. Okay, so the first one was in Japan. I had a teammate that was uh, – his family ties were to the mafia. So, he had, you know, the weird hairdos and all this stuff. He had the fancy cars or whatever. So I really have an alpha Kobe Bryant Mike mentality. So he comes in and, like, the jerseys are laid out. I'm number eight. So he played for the team the year before I came. So this is my return year. So I feel like I'm the man. So he comes in and he grabs my jersey. And, like, it usually doesn't go like that. They usually, like, give you stuff, like your name's on it or whatever like that or whatever. This is the preseason. So it's not about the number. He's trying to, like, mess with me. So he comes in and he grabs the number and whatever. And I'm looking at everybody like, yo, who is this dude and what is he doing? And he's like, JB, you know, tone it down. That's, you know, that's such and such. I won't say his name. But it's like, you know, that's such and such. I was like, I don't care who this guy is. Like, <laughs> you better give me my jersey, right? <laughs> so uh, he looked at me and he said, I'm number eight. And I was like, okay, you know, so now we're having a standoff. We jump into each other's face or whatever like that. You know, so uh, one thing led to another. It wasn't very successful for him, but they knew I was in trouble. Like, yo, you don't know who you just, you know, mess with, right? But when we played the game, like, we got into – this happens a lot. Like, teammates fight and then go play. That's what I love about men as opposed to dealing with women. Women take it too personal. So we get on the court and we have a great game. And after the game, he was like, yo, I want you to come, you know, hang with us, right? And this is where I had to learn the hard way that you're not at home. You're not the tough guy when you're not at home. There's no – like, it's just you. So we – we leave. This is a part of the story, by the way. We leave. So I was like, yeah, I'll go hang out or whatever. So I'm getting to know the guy. So we pull up at like this little convenience store because they go through their rituals. So they park their cars all sideways like Fast and the Furious or whatever in front of this convenience store. So let's say it's Circle K. So they got all their fancy cars out there parked all crazy or whatever. So I'm sitting in the car like I'm not getting out and smoking cigarettes and drinking alcohol and being a part of the, the weird Tokyo drift scene like I'm just going to wait on them to get done doing their thing so we can go see girls. So all I see is the guy that owns the store come out and bow. It's like, please, you know, you guys are scaring my customers. Can you just, you know, can you clear it out? You know, whatever. Like the ladies are scared to come in, moms and whatever. And, you know, he walks in the guy's store and tears it apart. Like racks of magazines, he's throwing them in the street. Like he pushes the guy on the ground. 
Like, I'm just in the car like, oh, my God, what's happening, right? We're going to jail. So he jumps in like, he has like this Escalade. We jump in the car and he pulls off and he looks at me and I'm like, he said, I'm so angry. And I was like, what? And he grabbed his phone. He made a phone call and he said, maybe he's going to get fired. And I was like, what? And sure enough, he got the guy fired. The guy didn't do anything wrong, but his family ran the whole city. So here I am fighting with a guy that can really make me disappear. And I didn't even know it. You know what I'm saying? So that was a hard lesson I had to learn being in like Japan because it's such a humble country. But it taught me how to maneuver when I went to new places and I didn't know where I was. Fast forward. Fast forward. I'm in Cyprus. And you would think I learned my lessons. It's like five years later. So all the Americans are lined up and they like ribbing me up because I'm a talk. So there's a particular guy who comes into the town from Greece and uh, they're like, yeah, he's the man, you know, you're going to have to guard him. And they, you know, they on TV talking or whatever. So I'll take it personal. So I make it my business to like kind of get the guy fired. Right. We call it getting cut. So um, we line up against each other at jump ball and he like kind of stands beside me. Hey, how you doing? And I was like, look at him like, why is this guy talking to me? So he was like, what? So I asked the other American. I was like, hey, when y'all get this local? He's American now. I'm calling him a local. So that's like personal talk to us. Like, what do you mean? I'm an, I'm an import. Like, I was like, man, you know, quit with the jokes. You're a local, you know, whatever. So I look over to his wife and I was like, yeah, it won't be no child support this month because he's coming home. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So now it's, now it's just personal. Like, it's super personal now. So the ball go up, you know. I catch the ball and he's being aggressive. And I was like, it doesn't matter what you, you know, doesn't matter what you do. I'm just better than you. So I hit the shot. I turn, I got this video. I can send it to you. I turn around. I look at the crowd. I'm like, he's going home. So I'm doing this to him the whole quarter. We're at the free throw line. I walk over to the coach. I said, coach, why'd you sign him? Like, (laughs) clearly I could have helped you out if you needed another player. I got your back. So he's fuming. So now I'm mentally messing with the coach. So now the coach takes him out. So I'm at the free throw line. So their their fans are doing this chant. Now we're in their gym. They're doing this chant, like their their pride chant, like you know, like the Rock and all of them. They're they're like Samoans and they have their little chant thing. So right. this particular city, they're like really proud. They have this chant going on. So I'm an idiot. So I learned their chant like a couple weeks before. So I'm <laughs> doing it too at the free throw line, right? <laughs> so <laughs> at halftime, my coach is like, uh, "Yeah, JB, I need to talk to you." I'm like, what? I got 19 and a half. We don't need to talk about nothing but a bonus. He was like, the police have to escort you out of the gym because, yeah, like, everybody's at the front door waiting on you. <laughs> everybody's at the front door waiting on you, and we don't think you're going to make it home. I was just like, yeah, I think I just took it too far. <laughs> oh, my gosh. That, that's amazing. That's amazing. That's why we love those stories because it's so different overseas. But there's another um, league that I want to ask you about really quick. I, I actually heard the story on your podcast when you had Keith Kloss on. I listened to it just the other night. And, uh, I mean, we also had Keith Kloss. This will be a fun one for our listeners. But can you talk to us about your experience in the Drew League? I mean, I know a little bit about this story already, but I feel it's an important one, especially for our younger listeners, about your experience there. And can you explain uh, maybe the atmosphere of the Drew League and also what you learned from Kloss that day as far as being aware of your surroundings? 
Yeah, like I keep telling y'all these stories over and over again. When I play basketball, I go into a whole nother space. I'm a whole nother guy. I'm cool off the court, but on the court, I'm ridiculous. So I knew Keith because we're obsessed with basketball. So you just see these people on television. So I finally um, got an invite to go to uh, the Long Beach NBA Summer League. This is where Kobe played. If you ever seen Kobe's 17 years old, he was playing in that purple jersey or whatever. It was the Pro-Am NBA oh, Summer yeah. League. That's the yeah. one I went to. So um, we're there, and I see Keith, like, from a distance, and I'm just excited to be there or whatever. So it's like, hey, we play in the Pro-Am in the, in the beginning, and then we play in the Drew League at night. I'm like, what's the Drew League? You know, whatever. They're like, you don't know what the Drew League is? Such a big deal. I've never been to California before, so I don't know Cali culture. So I'm thinking, you know, whatever. I don't care nothing about this or whatever. So – we're playing the first Drew League game. It was in two different gyms. The first one is the historic one that Kobe hit the 60 points on James Harden or whatever, where he held his hands up. Oh, that yeah. was the first place we went. That's where me and Keith wow. were. So <laughs> I walk in and I'm just like, okay, I'm kind of nervous. You know, Julius Hodge, Keith, all these dudes in here. And you know, I'm an outsider and, you know, I need to, I need to, you know, let everybody know I'm here. So, you know, the first, like, couple plays, you know, I try to dunk on Keith, and he's like, you know, not in here, you know, calling me country, because all of them knew I was from Atlanta. So he was like, oh, not in here country, none of that, you know, S is going to work in here or whatever. And I'm like, oh, I'm coming back, I'm coming back, you know, so we're just talking or whatever. So, <laughs> I, you know, I get it going, and I hit a couple shots, and I'm running my mouth to the crowd, and this is just what I'm used to, and I'm just noticing the – you know, the air is getting a little thicker, you know, <laughs> they're like moving down to the court, like closer and closer. And I'm just like, you know, like what's happening? And uh, Keith comes over to me and he's just like, Keith is so tall. Keith is like seven four. Right. So he's standing over me and, you know, it's like a shadow. You can't even see the sun anymore. He's just standing there. And he was like, hey, yo, young fella, you know, I'm going to just let you know, you know, like you need to shut the F up for the rest of the game. You ain't at home. And I was like, my instincts are like, I don't care where I am. But the feeling in the air was, you probably need to shut up and listen. And Keith was somebody that I loved growing up. And I, I, I quickly recognized that he wasn't being malicious. He was trying to teach me a lesson. And sometimes in life, you really do just need to shut the F up. You know what I'm saying? So I listened to him and um, we finished out the game. And then afterwards, you know, he talked to me. We went to dinner. You know, we had these experiences and I already knew his whole life. I knew about the gang stuff. I knew about the world star BS when they jumped on him and all of this. And we just talked about life. And I love the fact that he was so honest with me. Like I, I, I asked him like, yo, what'd you, you know, what'd you do with the, the money? Like what, what he was like, man, I drunk it or I gave it to my family or everybody that made me feel good about myself at the time or the girls that tricked me or whatever. And I'm like, wow, you know, so it just taught me about character and about decisions and, you know, consequences of the things you do. And no matter how important you are, you can be a peon just like that. You know, these guys that everybody worships in the NBA, you know, like LeBron James and all of these people, they're humans. You know, yeah. in, in, in the blink of an eye, you can have nothing. These people shouldn't be the leaders of our generation, or we shouldn't look to them as spiritual guiders. For example, Charles Barkley said, I'm not a role model on his commercial. Your parents 
are your role models. Nobody understood him. He's right. Just because I can dunk or I can shoot a ball doesn't mean you need to follow my way of life. I'm just a human playing a sport. But we we pump them up like they're gods and they're just not art. You know, like their character flaws are ridiculous. And Keith was just the only one that would admit it. Everybody else was just in love with themselves. Keith was like, nah, I made some mistakes. You know, I, I, I don't have my stuff together and I'm working every day to get it better. Like one step at a time, one day at a time. And that's how Keith lives day by day. You know, so I, re I respect Keith a lot. He was a he was a big part of my transition into what was next for me as far as national team and NBA and all of that. All of that transition happened after I was with Keith. Yeah, we loved Keith on our show, man. He was so cool and and so many great stories he told us and I uh, just super respect him as a person. I mean, just honestly a great, great dude. Hey, I want to talk to you about Sam Mitchell and how he discovered you and what was that first NBA training camp like because you got to experience that. Right. Sam Mitchell um, is a really, really, really awesome person. And, like, he, he got a bad rap. This guy was the NBA coach of the year, and he went from the NBA coach of the year to not having a job. And that's super strange and interesting to me. So um, I'm in Taiwan, and we're playing national team. And this is the year Kobe saved LeBron's career when he killed Spain. <laughs> so we I don't know if you guys remember it. And, you know, Eric, I know you'll know, but um, – when Michael Jordan and the guys went to Barcelona, Chris Webber and Bobby Hurley and them, they basically go and play the guys first. Oh, yeah. So that's what was going on with us. You know what I'm saying? So we were we were really like, like I got to be headlined next to Kobe and them's name and everything, and it was just such an awesome situation. Kobe's father was actually supposed to be our head coach that year. But uh, Eric Musselman, it, it was a big issue, like whatever, when they switched up the coaches. But anyways, we had nine games in 10, ga 10 days, national, national team. It's super hard because the level's so hard and you got to think so much and it's so stressful to have that amount of games in those little amount of days. Fans don't understand it. So imagine when you watch the, the, World, uh, the World Cup the year before and now we just had the Olympics. You don't notice that they're playing that many games. Right. So you played nine games in 12 days or whatever the case meant like that and that high of a level. I didn't have a good game every night. Like out of my nine games, I played three good games. And those three games are the games they saw. That's that far as gump thing coming up. You see what right, I'm saying? Right, right. So the gold medal game against the Philippines, I had my best game. The game against China and the game against uh, who was we playing in the Middle East? Lebanon at the time, and they had a, they had a really famous guy. No, Iran. They had like the four NBA players. So all of my big games came against the biggest teams. But if they would have saw a Korea game, they wouldn't have wanted me. Like a few games, I stunk it up. So, anyways, he saw the gold medal game because they were scouting uh, Blatch and I forgot the other guy's name. And then Jordan Clarkston ended up going there too. So I had my best game. I think I had like 13 points in the first half. And if anybody knows anything about like Olympic basketball, like if you have 16, those are big numbers. Like people aren't yeah. scoring 40, 30 points right. national team. It doesn't happen. So I had like 13 in the first half and we should have won that game. But, you know, I won't say why, but we lost by one at the buzzer to them and lost the gold medal. So that night um, I get a phone call. 
and it was like number eight. Like I didn't, have, I didn't even have a name. It's like number eight. Who are you? And I was like, I'm nobody, but I can be anything you want me to be. Basically, he was like, you know, who you're talking to. I'm like, yes, sir. I know exactly who I'm talking to. And he was like, you know, I'm gonna be watching you. Where are you playing at this year? So I was like, I haven't signed yet. I haven't made a decision. He said, okay, you know, we'll be watching. So at that point, my business hat is always on. I'm always incorporated in business. So I'm like, okay, I can't go to a Euro Cup team. I can't go to a big team because what if they cut me? You know what I'm saying? Now I just ruined it. So I'm going to sign with the worst team (laughs) I could possibly find so I could put up the best numbers ever, right? So – I was just looking through teams in Europe, just looking to searching teams in Europe with decent leagues, but a team that never won before where I can just go in and do my thing. So I gave the coach a call and I was like, listen, my name's Jermaine Barnes, blah, blah, blah. He was like, yeah, 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 yeah. I know who you are or whatever. And I was like, yo, I want to play for you. This never happens. Like you never call somebody. I'm like, yo, I want to play for you. And he was like, we can't afford you. What are you talking about? And I was like, no, 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 no. I don't care about the money. This is what's going on. I got a small window to get something done and I need you to back me on it. I'm just being honest. So I flew over there and met with the coach or whatever. We talked, I showed him the messages. So he knew everything was real. And like, they really didn't have any money. Like I was making like before I made national team and all that, probably 7,000. So like my first job was 500 then 1500 then 4,000 and 7,000. Right. So, I took, I went all the way backwards. Like they paid me like a thousand dollars a month. Like oh, they wow. didn't, really didn't have any money. But sure enough, every game I got to do anything I wanted to do. So I was third in scoring, third in rebounds, first in assists, and fourth in steals. So Pam called me just like he said he would. I'm over there. He was like, young fella. I was like, yeah. He was like, you doing good. I was like, yeah. He said, can you be in Minnesota on this day and this? I said, I'm already there. Like, what are we talking about? I, I'll walk out right now. <laughs> like, you know what I'm saying? So um, I went I went to Minnesota and it was it wasn't like, oh, you're on the training camp. Like it it's weird. You go to mini camp first, then it's training camp, and then it's preseason, then it's NBA. So it's a whole process. Like it's a big process. So when I walk in, I'm basically doing skill work with Sam and Flip Saunders. So they got me doing all this different stuff or whatever, and I'm just going through it. And as soon as it's over, I just leave. Every day I would just leave. I would see Kevin Garnett. They just drafted Andrew Wiggins, Zach Levine. Cat was there. Ricky Rubio was there. Everybody's there. The legends are there, like, coming back to visit and whatever. And then I see Kevin Garnett, and he's in Kevin Garnett form. Like, he's being Kevin Garnett, cursing everybody out, <laughs> flushing phones down the toilet. MF and rookies don't get phones, you know, all this stuff. <laughs> you know, I'm just staying out of the way, you know. So one particular day, KG was like, hey, why you don't never come in here? Like, they got, like, you know, it's where you practice. And then if you it's the training room. And then if you keep walking, it's like, basically like a cafeteria of every food you could ever want with a chef and all this kind of stuff. I never ate with them. I just walked to my room and got out of the way. So one particular day, he was like, why you don't never come in here and eat? And I said, because number one, I'm not on your team. Number two, you didn't invite me. And like, when I said that, he was like so cool because it was like the respect level of how this thing used to be old school. 
Not, well, you, y'all you got to respect. No, I never had that attitude. So he was like, man, you can come in here. He was like, F Sam, you know what I'm saying? Don't let him pretend that he's a tough guy. This, you know, they're just being silly or whatever. So we're sitting there and we're just talking. And he was just like picking my brain. And he 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 learned that I knew the game. And I was obsessed with the game. And I knew everybody. Like Andre Miller was there. And, like, I was like, man, it's really nice to meet you. I grew up watching you at Utah and then the Cavs. And then you led the league in assist this many years. Everybody that was there, I knew their whole life. Yeah. And, like, basketball players, no. They're just like, he just appreciated it. Kevin Garnett don't take pictures. He don't do autographs. He don't do none of that stuff for nobody. Like, if you know him, he don't do it. And he did it for me. Like, when I got hurt and, like, like they like he felt bad. Like, he was, like, Real cool with me. I asked him, like, do you mind if I take a picture with you? And what? He was like, no. They've been inviting me back, bro. I got to see Kobe's last game in Minnesota when uh -huh. Kevin Garnett dunked on Blake Griffin. That game, oh, they yeah. gave me floor, floor seats, everything, man. This is a year after I left there. Like, they were so good to me, and they didn't have to be good to me. You know, Flip Saunders, who was known as an asshole around the league, he was so – he was himself, but he was really nice to me, rest his soul. But – um. My experience there was amazing, man. And outside of basketball, I got to go to Presley Park or whatever and see where Prince was and, nice. you know, see where Purple Rain was filmed. It was – I enjoyed it, man. It was nice. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, you, you mentioned your injury during that answer right there. And I have to ask – I mean, because that can be a very difficult thing to recover from both physically and mentally. I know for my injuries, I had to change my game a lot. And I'm just curious what adjustments you had to make to your game or maybe your training or just mentally because you actually retired temporarily because of it, if I'm not mistaken. I'm, uh, right. Can you maybe give our listeners a little bit on kind of what place you're at when that happened? Man, listen, that was a very, very depressing time. You have to understand, I came from having to struggle in college to fight my way to pro to then being at the bottom of pro to fight my way to being respectable, playing in six countries up into that point before I made national team. And then finally proving to everybody that I was as good as I really thought I was to Slam Magazine, to all the hype, to now I'm at the stage and then boom, it's over. Like it's over, you know? And um, a lot of people don't know this. My company was thriving. My company just merged with a big company. So I made a million dollars in business. Like, and you know, when you make a million dollars in business, you don't have a million dollars. The company has a million dollars. So if you wanted to go under, you can take it. But my company just signed for a million dollars. I just made it to the NBA. Like my family was okay. You know, my daughter was getting everything I felt like she deserved. I had a home. I had three cars. Like you couldn't tell, like I was living the dream. You know what I'm saying? So when that happened, everything happened. So when the injury happened, like, uh, I'm not ashamed to say this, like me and my kid's mom were, we didn't get along. So I had to go to court. So I lost my kid. My kid lived with me until she was eight. So I lost my kid. I lost my career. My company got sued while I was in Athens, not Athens. And when I was in Cyprus, my company got sued. Had nothing to do with me. This is another business thing for people. That's another day of, comp you know, conversation, but Company got sued and we had to go to court for that. So everything happened at one time. So like the leg, like the leg died, bro. Like the, the, the best example I can give you is if you slam your finger in the door, the nail turns black, the nail falls off, and then you grow a new, new nail. 
my leg died. When I landed on my leg, the nerves died. They weren't firing anymore. So I'm like, okay, ACL, MCL, whatever, you can repair that. You can't repair a dead leg. My nerves were not responding. You don't have nerves in, in something in your body. It don't work. Now you're talking about somebody. I had a 40-inch vertical. I was strong as an ox. I can I I was I was I felt like I was at the prime of my physical being as myself, and all of that was gone. Like when I came back, I tried to rush it back. It wasn't responding. When I went to shoot, it felt like a knife was going in my knee. Like when I go to the doctors, they never had an answer for me. Like, what do you say? What's the pitcher's name that his arm was messed up and they named the surgery after him? I forgot uh, the name. Tommy of John. There you go. So before him, they didn't know what he had. I was the first. You know what I'm saying? So the doctor was just like, listen, it's over. Like, you can play in some church leagues. <laughs> like, basically what he said to me. Like, wow. it was over. And it was over at the prime of my life. And that is – that was the hardest part of life because it just took me right back to high school, right back to college, where I had to separate myself and get to know me all over again, you know, because – I have close, close friends to me that committed suicide and, and went through depression and all these different things. And we're warriors. So excuses are not allowed. So I'm always into solutions. So I had to lay there in the middle of my bed with basically an amputated leg because it got infected on the third surgery and they almost had to take it from me. Like I was just laying there like, what happened? Like yeah. we were just winning. What happened? And I'll never forget, you know, and I want everybody to hear me say this clearly. I laid in the middle of that bed, losing my kid, losing my money. They took my house. They took my cars. My body's gone. And I'm looking at the ceiling. And I told God, I said, they can have it all because you gave it to me. So if you gave it to me, who am I to say I deserve to have it or keep it? I was never supposed to have it in the first place. You know what yeah. I'm saying? So if this is a test to see whose side I'm on. This world isn't real to me anyway. And material has never mattered to me anyway. So they can have it. I made that decision right there in that bed. They can have everything. I don't care. You know, and when that moment happened, I started to learn why I was there. Because, you know, I lost my father a few years ago. But when my father first got sick is when I got hurt. So I had the opportunity for the first time in my life to get to know my father. The only thing I knew about my father is he worked like hell and he came home and he woke up and he went to work. You know what I'm saying? I didn't know, know my, how cool my dad was or how funny he was. Or all he did was work and you come home and you get yelled at or you get a whooping or why'd you get in trouble in school? You know, that's the typical, you know, whatever. That was the first time in my life where I got to spend two years with him just him, you know, and I think that's why I got hurt. Like it was for the particular reasons because the most high God knew he was going to be leaving soon. And I needed that time, you know? So, you know, after two years, I don't know, my leg just started to, to respond better. And like you said, I had to change my game, but the positive thing about changing my game is I already had skill set in the mid range. So losing my dunking ability didn't change the fact that I could score. You know, right. so I just had to slowly start testing it. You know, I took a job to go to Costa Rica to play with my friend Corey Bradford that went to Illinois. And um, I just started, you know, testing it, testing it, testing it until my confidence got up enough to where I 
was comfortable playing again, you know, and um, that's what happened. But not much changed. The only thing that changed was the flash of the dunks. But yeah, yeah, like the 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 stuff I learned in college as far as studying and skills and fadeaways and body placement and all of that, I still had it all and I could gain it all back. It just wasn't as explosive as it used to be. But these kids so dumb in today's age, I could still get 30 because they didn't know how to guard it. (laughs) They're not, they don't study, man. So like you said, Vince Carter and them can still play. LeBron James and them are still the best players in the league. Why? Because these kids don't know how to play basketball. Like they didn't, they just cone babies, man. And that's why I was in Minnesota at 29 years old, because <laughs> these kids can't play. <laughs> like, I don't yeah. hide from that. They're not very good. You know, when I first came out of college, I couldn't make it. I'm a 30-year-old, and I'm making it. Why? Because they can't play, you know? Yeah. I mean, and they need to get back to the drawing board of basketball and understanding what basketball is about. And I know I'm going off on a tangent, but I do want to say this. The parity of basketball changed. I know Eric knows this for sure. You know, being in the 70s and 80s, there used to be shooting teams. There used to be physical teams like the Pistons. Then you had Showtime Lakers. Then you had the air show with Michael Jordan. Then you had the highlight factory with Dominique Wilkins. The point is, everybody was different. So it parody made the game special. And all of them hated each other. So the rivalries made the, the brotherhood of each team better. Now, the league is a brotherhood. Hey, how you doing? Okay, don't hit me too hard. You know the rules. You're not supposed to score in the fourth quarter when the game's over with. Who made these rules? This yeah. is war. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> it's just different, man. That's why the older guys are still dominating. because. Yeah, man. I don't know, man. It's a fluffy, fluffy time, though. It's true. I mean, everything you're saying is, I mean, it's it's so on point. And I try to tell the kids, you know, that I coach that, too. I mean, it really is a lot different today. And uh, one thing that we learned from Keith was how you've become such a great mentor for a lot of the younger players coming up. He spoke very highly of you for that. And I just wanted to see if maybe you could expand on that and tell us how you've transitioned into that type of role and the message or lessons that you try to pass on to the younger guys that you play with or coach? Yeah, it's very important to me to give give back to what's next. You know, everything is about what's next. When I was um, when I was young, nobody was there for me. I didn't have anybody to help me. We were just kind of learning on our own. So when I left college, I was still getting the high school kids in college. When we started the company, we had outreach programs where we were bringing in Europeans, Africans into Atlanta to get them into college. Like I was so big on saving lives, but since we're not on television or we're not at the top of the building saying, hey, look at us or look at our promise school, LeBron effect. It's just like y'all are only doing things for TV. You're not really saving lives. You're just, you know, building likes. You know what I'm saying? So Keith saw that firsthand he would come to these things and he would see what we were doing and how we was like really trying to save everybody you know it's it's just huge to me because you get burned out and you would know this you're working in the high schools and stuff with these kids your reward is between you and your god because it's never going to be with a kid because nobody's ever going to be grateful right it's always you're the bad guy you're mean or he he liked this person better than me or whatever the case may be but you have to be a cheerful giver 
knowing that somebody had to give to you or somebody has to give to your kid, right? I have a daughter. I would hope that she meets a Jermaine Barnes when she's 30 that saves her or that helped her or somebody that gave back to her. So if we're not making the sacrifices for ourselves, how can I complain about somebody else not being a leader or somebody not doing their part in the community? Like somebody has to be a light. Now I might not be the best taste. I'm definitely an acquired taste, but I know my motive is always to what's next and the better good of this planet. Cause as humans, all of us, man, we all need each other. I always tell people to take a village. That don't mean just your city as, as a, as a planet, we all need each other, you know? So I just try to do my part here in saving lives. Basketball is a great tool and a teacher, but I just use it to get the message across because Eric can reach people that I can't reach. I can reach people that Zach can't reach. Everybody has their gifts, right? So all these kids in this basketball community, because it's such a great sport, they'll listen to me. But Eric might have the same message, but his kid didn't listen to him, but he'll listen to me. You know what I'm saying? So all of us have to do our part in order to get the message out. You know, so that's what I'm I'm real big about. I'm real big about that. So it's never been about me. It's been about me understanding that the only reason my struggle and my process was so hard because I didn't have a me for me to advise me. So if we don't change it, then who's going to change it? Yeah, that's a great point. I, I'm a teacher for a living, and uh, I always look at every student differently because you can't teach everybody the same. And I think that's where we screw up a lot in life is we just expect everybody to learn the way that we want to teach them, but not realizing that, you know, people are complex and there's definitely different avenues to do that. And speaking of avenues, what are you up to nowadays? What do you, what's your, what current projects are you working on? Sounds like there's a documentary that might be coming out about you. Man, listen, listen, this is something a lot of people don't know. I was supposed to be like the second Netflix document. Uh, it didn't work out because of selfishness from the director and communication, man, because Netflix isn't like a person or an entity you negotiate with. Like everything is based off, you know, who you are, viewership and what's hot at the time, you know? And um, I think I missed my window on that, but man, we filmed it. What a great story it was. And it was, it was at Minnesota with us. It was, you know, with, the uh, Olympic stuff. It, I, we had everything documented, but it didn't work out. Um, after I stopped playing, I started coaching. I was in Germany for a few years. Um, you know, we were very successful. I went there. They were the worst team in the whole country. Now they're a DBBL team. They should be a Euro Cup team soon. Uh, my company, of course, we do international events where I'm probably one of the only companies that sanctioned by the uh, the global side of basketball. And we get these people jobs and, you know, those are one of the things keeps come to and we try to mentor to these people and help them because again, it's about who's next. Um, I'm currently living in the Dominican Republic. I usually keep all my private stuff private, but I'm simple, man. Like I like waking up, going for a walk. I can't walk in the United States. You know, everything is just so dangerous or busy or you always have to be on alert or you know it's just different when you're overseas man you just just you just are existing 
You know, I can put on my headphones and go for a walk and just listen to music, man, or go for a jog or go to the beach or whatever the case may be. I enjoy life overseas. You know, I'm the first person that would tell anybody, everybody should leave home and learn how other people live and appreciate how great and wonderful the United States of America really is. Because we, we were blessed. My passport carries weight. Even though I'm not a fan of the USA, everybody knows that. I don't want to live in the country because I don't agree with a lot of stuff we do. But it's still the most powerful, greatest country ever. We have a lot of benefits that others don't have. You know, there are some African people. There are Colombians, Haitians, or whatever. They can't travel. They need visas. They need this. They need that. Americans, we're spoiled. We can just grab our passport and we can go anywhere we want to. That's a luxury. I was born into that community of luxury. You know, regardless of who's more successful than who in our country, as Americans, we're privileged and we get to do more than other people do. So, you know, I'm just, you know, my travels have really taught me how to appreciate being born in a special country. I could have been born in a poverty, you know, and not being able to eat, you know, and I hate to say this on camera, but. That's one thing I take so much pride in, walking down the street and seeing people that don't have and being able to do for them. That helps me more than any jump shot I've ever taken or a celebration. To see somebody that didn't have to now have, that's huge for me. I love that. Now, that's not for everybody to know or everybody to see, but it does something for me. Like, I, I wish everybody had that mindset because if everybody thought like that, everybody would be okay. Yeah, you're speaking the truth right there, man. I mean, that's it's it's enormous. There's so many problems here that we don't solve that we need to solve, and sometimes I just scratch my head on why aren't we solving them? You know what I mean? And I mean, obviously, there's money issues and power issues and all those other things, man. But you bring up a great point. Um, we want to leave you on a lightning round. It's really simple game we like to play. It's just a one or two word answer to some questions Zach will ask you. Zach, are you ready to ask the questions? I am. And uh, my first question to you is, how'd you get the nickname Juice and why is it spelled with a G rather than a J? <laughs> Gotta ask. Yeah, man. This is, this, this is actually hilarious. Um, <laughs> I got my name Juice because me and my friends grew up uh, fans of this guy named Juice Williams. He was a football player. I think he played for Syracuse or something. All my close friends, they was like, the only reason you like him because his first name is Juice, but he was really good. So we used to laugh. Then when we got older, there was a local rapper called OJ the Juice Man. Yeah. So we used to laugh at that, right? So we used to listen to this stuff, right? So when I went to Japan, I had I had the 60-point the game. So my boy called me. He said, oh, so you got the juice now. So then my Japanese teammates – Heard the conversation, and every time I scored, they'd say, Juice Man, Juice Man, Juice Man, right? So I didn't want to be Juice Man like everybody else if that was what they were going to call me because they were making shirts and stuff and drawing little cartoon pictures to put on the web and stuff. I didn't want to have the same name as everybody else. So, like, when our we had, like, you know, like in wrestling, they had NWO and all that stuff. We had our GIE stuff. So I was like, okay, well, if I'm going to be Juice, then I'm going to – Spell it with a G because there's G-I-E inside juice. And what people never realize is G-I-E meant that God was everything to me. So if I'm juice and G-I-E is inside juice, we were two in one. So it, 
Yeah, it definitely it, it meant way more than people could ever understand. They just be wearing our shirts and stuff like, oh yes, yeah, a team. Yeah, okay. <laughs> like it was way more. Yeah, that, I I love that. That's incredible. I, I appreciate you sharing that. And uh, who is your toughest cover as a player? The one guy that you just couldn't figure out how to guard. Uh, man, it's crazy. It's crazy. Like I, all the name dropping, but I don't mind. Okay, first of all, the first guy that ever destroyed me was Roy Ivy. He went to okay. University of Texas and then he played in the NBA for ten years. And then you know everybody thinks he's bad, and then you see him in person. This is like, oh. Yeah, this guy's incredible. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, like, no, no, no pro is bad. <laughs> yeah, no, he destroyed me. He let me – at 23, he allowed me to recognize that I wasn't on the NBA level. So that was the first guy that was just – he just killed me, right? Uh, the second guy, I was playing in Uruguay. And I, I, I don't know if this guy's ever going to hear this message. It's so funny. This guy was playing in the G League, and he came to Uruguay. They brought him in just for, like, the playoffs. His name was Joseph Works. He's from Texas. He played for Texas Tech with Bobby Knight. This guy was Kobe Bryant. He was Kobe Bryant, but he just didn't have it. Like, he didn't have the gear, right? So the game starts. The guy dunks his – not his forearm like Vince. No, like his whole shoulder. He dunked his shoulder in the rim. And I'm just looking at my teammates like, what the hell are we supposed to do when a guy put his whole body in a rim? The guy had an incredible handle. The guy could shoot. He was 6'7", seven, seven-foot wingspan, and he had a 50-inch vertical. So the game starts, and I'm like, I'm screwed. Like, it's, all, it's over. We're matched up. So, you know, I hit my first boring mid-range footwork shot. He comes down, goes between his legs, spin move, windmill layup type thing, and I'm looking like I can't guard that. I come down. I do my boring stuff. I hit again, and I'm, you know, I'm playing my mental warfare games. You can't guard me, this, this, and this. He does some other spectacular stuff, and I'm just like, what am I going to do? So anyways, he died down, right? He died down because he thought I was really good. In my mind, he was the best thing I've ever seen in my life. So this is poker face all day long. So I outplayed him, but he never knew, and I'll say it on white like this dude was 50 times better than me. I just out-pokered him. So he crapped out way too early. <laughs> the guy was incredible. Joseph Works. I'll, I'll have to look that name Works. up. And, Joseph uh, Works. 6'7", Texas Tech University, played in the G League. That's okay. like most impossible guy to guard ever. Most okay. impossible. I also learned from that answer to never play poker with you. So thanks for that. And, uh, <laughs> oh, I'm the, I'm the best gambler you'll ever see in your life. I'll fake it. Hey, I'm from Reno and I'm a terrible gambler. So <laughs> uh, favorite country you lived in and why? The bigger or the best? Uh, your favorite country that you've ever lived in and why? Oh, the best country I've ever lived in my entire life is Tokyo, Japan. Tokyo, Japan. It was just so clean. There was no violence. It was too much technology everywhere. These are the people that had, this is 2006. They were charging phones with like one contraption. They plug it in and it would just charge the phone up. Like I was just blown away. You know, the toilets, they clean your behind for you and all that. Mm-hmm. I saw all this stuff before it ever hit the TV. Like <laughs> I was just blown away by how they live their life. They're like little robots walking around. <laughs> too, too many cars. So what do they do? They start their train system. There's no cars on the street. Anytime they have an issue, they fix it. Like it's like immediately fixed. Like they were just like, it's like looking at worker ants. 
Like they work in sync. It's just everything was just in order. The most yeah. beautiful country is Athens, Greece. I love it there. It's just uh, breathtaking. Like, yeah. Um, yeah, that's you know those those two are are huge. Like, but Tokyo was the best one. I lived in Tokyo for three years. Yeah, and what a crazy concept to fix things. I mean, wow. <laughs> but <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, any weird superstitions that you or a teammate had that come to mind? Uh, in basketball. Yeah, basketball or or, or could, in anything really, anything that you think would our listeners would, would enjoy. Man, like for me in sports, everything is about uh, preparation and like you say, a ritual or routine. If I don't go through my same routines before I play, I know I'm going to have a bad game. This is terrible to say on uh, on air, but like I could never have sex the week before a game. (laughs) If you you dare have sex before the game, you're going to play horrible. So I would like never do it. Like I would freak out. Like I'll never forget. Like when I was in college, like I was dating, like this is terrible to tell y'all, but I was dating like the entire dance team. And like I did something before a game. And when I went into the game, I was like, you're going to play the worst game of your life. I had two points. I was just like, never, I never, I was so strict. Like I would never do anything with anybody before the game. So Monday through Friday, I would just train. I would not be with anybody. And then after the game Saturday, yeah, that's another, that's another tale. But yeah, (laughs) then Monday, he said it was on. (laughs) Yeah, but then Monday, like that's, that's my routine and my ritual is, is over the top, but it was the only way I could be successful. Like, Everything was about the training and the film. And then afterwards, it's like, phew, okay, that's over. Now I can go, you know, uh, go overboard. You know, like if you have like a, a pack of Skittles, it's like you just couldn't eat the pack. I'll eat the box. Like I was like that. So it's just like, yeah, I'll focus the whole time. And then I'll go Dennis Rodman in Vegas and Michael Jordan has to come find me. You know what I'm saying? It's like, <laughs> hey, dude, what are you doing? <laughs> I go. I, that's why I never did drugs because I have an addictive personality. I'll go too far. Yeah, I, I'm the same way, and with the superstitions, I'm the same way. And I think uh, it, what you just told us reminds me of uh, Rocky. How uh, his trainer said women make the legs weak or whatever. Stay away from the women before your match. So that that that's what that reminded me of. Uh, my last question to you is: What's your favorite basketball memory? If you had to pick just one, so national team, man, Taiwan. Um, Winning a medal, um, being heartbroken and not winning a gold medal when I knew I did everything I could do, you know, like it taught me a valuable lesson about never leaving anything out there, like never leaving the chips on the board. Like if you're going to do something, go all in because there's no, oh, we'll we'll get them next year. No, it's not next year. You better get it now because you never know like the, the moments and windows are so small, you you can't get things back. So it just taught me, if I'm going to do something, I'm going to leave it all out here so I have nothing, you know, to, you know, regret. And so many athletes do that. Oh, I should have took the shot or I should have played harder or, man, like, you know, because you're scared. But me, man, I just I just let it all hang out because I know it can be taken, especially from being hurt and whatever. Like, I've lived my whole life like that, like, at the end of the day, man, when we die, we don't get teammates. We don't get kids. We don't get a wife. We don't get any of those things. You get to go see your maker, right? So I look at this world differently. It's like, why would I be scared of these small things when, when the lights go off, they're off? 
Like, so when I walk into these competitions or business or whatever I do, I'm going to give it my absolute best. I don't want to be better than anybody. I want to be the best Jermaine Barnes I can be. That's, That's all I can be. I can't be Kobe. I can't be Mike. I can't be Steve Allen or whoever person we can make up. I only can be the best version of myself I can be. So why would I be scared in the middle of anything? I'm just going to lay it all out there and be like, you know, it is what it is. And as crazy as this sounds, I mean, you want to be you. I mean, you don't want to be, oh, he's like Michael Jordan or he's like this guy or that guy. I mean, you want to be Jermaine Barnes. That's who you want to be. It makes complete sense to me. You know what I mean? Um, is there anything you want to add or promote before we let you out of here? Man, listen, I, I just really want to say this openly. Um, so many people are scared to approach me because I'm so outspoken. And they think I'm Hollywood because of all the things I've done. And now we're doing this podcast and we have these big guests or whatever. I saw you guys work. You know, um, you sent me a you sent me a DM, Zach, and that was cool and everything about Keith. But I'm the guy that's already studying everything before it ever happens. So when we spoke, I wanted to do it for sure. And I think it's a testament to how hard you guys work. I think you guys put a lot of time into what you do. And I don't want to promote anything I'm doing. What I want to say is I appreciate what you guys do. I'm a fan of what you guys do. And I think it's special that you guys continue to do what you do. So if I can promote anything, I'll promote that I respect what you guys are doing and that I'm enjoying this moment. I think this was awesome. We appreciate that beyond words. I mean, it's amazing. We love basketball and, you know, me and Zach are good friends and we, we play morning basketball together and that's how we started this pod. And it's, it's been such an amazing journey. And, and honestly, the conversation we've had with you today was just awesome. I mean, there's so much I learned. So you motivated, motivated me a lot today, you know, just listening to your words, to be honest with you. Um, Zach, is there anything you want to add before we let Jermaine out of here? Yeah, I just want to say thanks for the kind words, man. I mean, we really do put a lot of work into it. And I mean, we just love learning the game from guys like you and just about the journey and just everything that you've overcome. And I just got to say from everything we heard from Keith, I mean, I can definitely see why guys like that respect you so much. It's everything that you went through and overcame after the injury. I thought I think it's just super inspiring and impressive. And I, I know that your story is going to touch a lot of our listeners today. So we just really can't appreciate your time enough. So thank you. Uh, no problem, man. No problem. Thank you, guys. Awesome. Jermaine, be safe, man. Enjoy yourself. And uh, thanks for coming on the show. We appreciate you. No problem. That was an incredible episode, man. Just uh, everything that he's gone through, like I said, uh, it's just going to inspire a lot of people. And a lot of people, I mean, we know about all the LeBron James and the NBA players. We really need to appreciate the game overseas more. I mean, this is somebody that led the league in scoring in seven different countries in just eight years, seven times in eight years. I mean, from all the different styles of play and just all the physicality overseas, that's so that's super impressive to me, man. I mean, well, a lot of people think, need to know more about Jermaine Barnes. Well, let's just think about this. Like, how hard do you think it would be to put it in perspective for other people, right, you know, that don't know about the Euro game? Think about how hard it would be for you to change an NBA team every year and still lead the league in scoring. Yeah, incredible. Yeah. I mean, different different teammates, different systems, you know, different city, different, I mean, you know, different divisions. I mean, there's so much to it. And to do that overseas in, in seven different countries, you know what yeah. I mean? You know, the United States is one country. To do it in seven different countries, I mean, that's insanity. That's and the, 
and this is a guy that didn't rely on athleticism. This is somebody that, like we talked about earlier, working on the footwork and mastering the mid-range game. I mean, he's a student of the game. And the fact that he was able to come back after a career-threatening injury two years out of basketball and put up the numbers he was putting up, I mean, it, it's it's something that really should not go unnoticed. I mean, we, we really need to appreciate what he did after the fact. And uh, – once you're a student of the game, you never stop being one. I just love that he's continuing to, you know, spread his knowledge to young hoopers coming up. I just really appreciate that a lot. And keeping it real too, man. He kept it so real. And I always, oh, yeah. appreci- I always appreciate that. You know, I feel like today in sports, there's so many canned answers. You know what I mean? Like, it's like you almost could recite the interview, the post-game interview before it even happens. And to me, for him being as real as he was and, and all the knowledge that he dropped today, I mean – I don't see how that doesn't help out people that got to listen to the to the pod today. I I I was super like I said I didn't I wasn't lying. I was super motivated by a lot of the stuff he said in our interview. It's definitely huge, 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 huge things that he said. And the biggest thing that I took away from it at the very end was that he did his research on us, which I thought was amazing. And came on the show and really, ladies and gentlemen, it's because of you guys and all the great things you're doing for us whether you're sharing posts, whether you're, you know, giving us reviews on Apple and Spotify listeners and everything you're doing, knocking us up the charts, those type of things, get us guests like that. And in return, what it does for you guys is it gets you really good quality interviews and you get to learn stories and a lot of stories you don't know because these are not the guys that are going to interview all the time that they really do need to be interviewed, you know? So thank you for that opportunity for us to be able to do that stuff. Zach, is there anything you want to add before we get out of here? Uh, I just want to say big thanks to Jermaine Barnes for coming on. Um, really enjoyed learning more about him and give him a follow on Instagram, Twitter. Like you said, I think a lot of people, you know, he, he said he wasn't approachable. He's a great dude. Great guy. Um, you know, go follow him on Instagram, Twitter, uh, go find him. Uh, you'll definitely learn a lot from him on a daily basis. He posts a lot of good basketball content. I think you'll really enjoy it. Awesome. Yeah. I, I agree with you 100% on that. Ladies and gentlemen, the show has come to an end. Thanks a lot for listening. Super appreciate it. Make sure you're good to yourself. Be good to other people. Stay safe out there. Peace.